0: Go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Romans. Romans chapter 1, we'll look at verses 24 and 25. Romans chapter 1, 24 to 25. These are the words of God. <clears throat> Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered here because we need your forgiveness. We need your pardon, and we need your spirit to sanctify. Help us to understand your word more clearly, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. My sermon for this evening is part two of this brief two-week series, and I thought it would be good to let you know why I chose to do this series. And you should also know that me telling you why I'm doing this correlates with where I intend to go with the message. As we consider the reasons for which we are doing this church plant, and one of the reasons is because we have particular convictions about a whole lot of things that don't necessarily line up with other brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and that's okay, uh, we have to remember something. We have to remember that novelty isn't necessarily a virtue. Novelty isn't necessarily a virtue. While we are doing something new here, we have to remember that what we are doing is attached to a historical context. In other words, this is a new fellowship, that is true, but it isn't new in the sense that it's never been done before. We are not reinventing the wheel here. Cross and crown isn't God's sole gift to mankind, and we shouldn't have a patronizing attitude that suggests and perpetuates that. Thinking. We are blood bought Christians, and God has used his blood bought Christians for thousands of years. So when I speak of novelty, I'm not trying to say that novelty is inherently bad, it's not, but it's also not inherently good either. Stated another way, we need to know that our uniqueness isn't the end game. It simply is not the most important thing. The, the most important thing is not that we've finally figured it out when everyone else around us has not. Uh, remember, we, we exist as a means to something. We are not the ends. And so the end, um, the end goal for us isn't to build cross, the cross and crown brand and then kick our feet up and say, well, look what we have built. Um, Nebuchadnezzar did this, and he ended up moseying around like a cow, eating grass, and I'm sure mooing from time to time. Being built by Christ as his people isn't the same thing as building a home business, and so we mustn't treat it as such. So, it matters that we understand that Christ's mission in the world doesn't hinge on us. His mission in the world doesn't hinge on us. God isn't hand-wringing, wondering if Cross and Crown is going to do something big or not, because if, if we don't, then he's you know his hands are tied and he, he can't do a whole lot else. It doesn't hinge on us. We are not the cornerstone holding this building together. And while we are cogs in the machine, or more aptly, living stones in this new temple— we can't forget that Christ does in fact get praise from actual rocks, lest you think yourself to be too special. So, so we are excited about what we're doing here at Cross and Crown, but let's not get too inflamed. Passion is a good thing. Passion is a good thing. But like anything, we can knock it over and then we watch it break on the floor. So we have to be careful. I say all this to sort of set up the reason for why I wanted to do this series. As I, as I thought about what it is we need right now, as we are in this early gestation period as a church, um, I had become, I become really increasingly concerned that without a proper foundation, we'll end up making a mess of things um b- bottle rockets are great but remember how fast they they last the, you know they're they're just a flash in the pan it's over um so we want a long term fireworks display compared to th- to that um it's, it's absolutely imperative that each of us here in this core group know with certainty the truthfulness of the scriptures. That's why we're doing this series. We must know with certainty the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. If the Bible is just another book uh, on par with Shakespeare, then we're wasting our time. If the Bible is some sort of esoteric magic book that requires um, unusual incantations and other oddities in order to understand it, then all of us are, quite frankly, in trouble. We must be convinced of the truthfulness of the Bible. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. The Bible alone is the standard of truth. If we cannot have this thinking as foundational to our mission, then we won't have much of a mission at all. And, and that's, why, that's why I believe understanding that there is no other standard is entirely crucial. So kids, for you too, it's entirely crucial for you know that the Bible alone is the standard of truth. Um, it will quite literally make or break what we do here. If we compromise even one iota on the word of God, if we if we are decidedly against taking the entirety of the Bible and applying it entirely, then we will not only find ourselves outside the will of God and thus under judgment. Honestly, we will find ourselves utterly irrelevant to the world around us because otherwise we're just another, you know we'll, We'll just find ourselves saying a bunch of stuff And it will just throw on the pluralistic shelf with all the other stuff that goes on around in the world So if we if we don't have the truthfulness of scripture to share with people then then we have nothing to say as I argued last week Jesus made it clear in John 1717 17, that god's Word is truth. it is in and of itself a revelation of God. Its authority is vested vested in tied up and connected to the authority of God himself. So the biblical doctrine of the authority of the Bible over the Christian in all areas of life, okay that stems from the fact that God created the world. And when you create something out of nothing, you're pretty, you're pretty well in authority at that point. And not only that, but the fact that Christ came, as we celebrate in Christmas, he came to redeem the world. So, so that was last week. Tonight, I, I really just want to build on that. The Bible alone is the standard of truth, now what? The Bible alone, yes, it's the standard of truth, now what? Why does that even matter? Why is it important to know that the scriptures are our authority over matters pertaining to life and doctrine? Why should we care about that? So let's let's consider our text before us. The book of Romans is a letter penned by the Apostle Paul, and this particular section here, Um, Paul basically unpacks the doctrine of reprobation the doctrine of reprobation simply put a reprobate is a non-elect person who has rejected the gospel who does not possess salvation so there are two types of people in the world Okay, you have the elect and the non-elect that's it there's no third party Uh, so you have the elect and the non-elect the chosen by grace justified in Christ alone sinners on the one hand and the non-chosen by grace unjustified, dead in their sins you know, finger-shaking fist-clenched sinners on the other hand and part of Paul's argument here in Romans is that the reprobate is guilty primarily of idolatry um, which is basically a fundamental violation of the first commandment. What's the first commandment, kids? You shall have no other gods before me, right? No other gods. And what happens when you put another god before the Lord? Not, not good things happen. <laughs> um, that, that's called idolatry, when you put something before God. So I'm going to read some, some context here. So flip back to Romans 1, verse 18, and I, I want to give you kind of uh, a, sum, a summary of what we have here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18... For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, that's what we have in our nation right now, a lot of claims to wisdom. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, because of all of that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So follow the train of thought. Apart from Christ, men are ungodly and unrighteous, and God's wrath is revealed in their suppression of the truth. That's verse 18. Their suppression of the truth is suppression. It's an active suppression of what they know about God because God has shown it to them. Verse 19. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes have been perceived in creation. Verse 20. Also in verse 20 is Paul's shored up argument that their guilt is true guilt. They are without excuse. Literally, they have no defense. There is no, def- no defense. No unbeliever can find himself with a defense attorney before the throne of God because just there is no defense. So they knew God, verse 21, and they, quote, did not honor him as God, end quote. Their hearts were darkened by their suppression. They, they claim wisdom but are fools, verse 22. And in their foolish suppression of the truth, they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation, verse 23. Now, because of this unrighteous suppression and exchanging, how does God respond? God gave them up. This is his wrath on display. He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and the dishonoring of their bodies. Verse 24. Just a quick side note. Uh, Men do sinful things with their bodies because their bodies are attached to their volition, their will which is revealed in what they want in their hearts. That's why Paul makes the connection here. In other words, sin doesn't just manifest itself out there. Rather, it starts in the human heart, and then it moves outward. Outward. And another side note, I didn't think of this until just now. But notice all the arguments and the, the things fight we're fighting about in culture. All of them, to some extent, are connected to bodies, physical bodies, gender, sexuality, all of these things. So there, certainly that's part of Paul's thinking there. At any rate, um, here, here's the apex of the argument, verse 25. Note this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the argument Paul is mounting is one that basically flies in the face of contemporary culture, and we'll get to that momentarily. But the point is, unrighteous, unsaved men and women and children know God, which also means that their problem isn't knowledge or lack of knowledge. Rather, their problem is suppression of of righteousness, suppression of the truth about God. They know God, and they would rather have their own way. This was the problem from the very beginning. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they wanted to know good and evil, which is to say, they wanted to determine good and evil their own way. They they wanted their own ethical grid, um, that one that was built on um, um, subjectivity and, and rebellion and anything in the category of being an obdurate person. So apart from the grace of God, sinners always long for autonomy. Apart from the grace of God, sinners always long for autonomy. Part of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here in this doctrine of reprobation is the inescapable reality that it is not whether men will worship, but who the object of their worship will be. Notice that. It's not a question of if they will worship. It is who. Who is the direct object of their action, their worship? Will man worship Christ, or will man worship himself or the created order? Those are the only two options that Paul lays on the table. The reason this connects... To a foundational understanding of the Bible alone being our, our standard of authority, our standard of truth Is because the Bible's authority draws the lines of demarcation The Bible's authority draws the lines of demarcation the, the boundary markers for all things related to ethics or morality or world view And even the material world Are fixed They are fixed and they are based upon the Bible's authority If we do not have a fixed point of reference, everything else gets dislocated and out of place. If we don't have a fixed point of reference, a fixed standard, an objectively true, whether you believe it or not standard, then everything else we believe, how we live our lives and so on and so forth, everything gets all dislocated, disjointed, and disheveled. Um... If the bible isn 't the standard, then there is some other standard out there that we have to appeal to, and if that 's the case, everything else is going to unravel because no one can really agree on what that is, right? No one can agree what the standard is. you know is it me and what I think? Talk to, talk to a college student in a well, you could probably do this at a Christian university, sadly, but think about it in a secular a non god honoring institution, so you 're basically your state schools. <laughs> Talk to a student and ask them if there is such a thing as objective truth. And what will they say to you? No. And they won't even see the irony that they just made an objectively true statement. So without a fixed point, everything's unraveled. Everything becomes confused and all of us are just kind of walking around in the dark. Now, obviously, this is the case with our current circumstances, gender, human sexuality, and so on. Uh, All of that becomes a free-for-all because nothing is really fixed except the principle of non-fixity, which is the irony. The only absolute truth, right? There are no absolutes. That's the sort of disorderly nonsense that passes today, that passes for knowledge This is the fruit of relativistic morality and fluid ethical considerations. Everything is just kind of wishy-washy. I do what I want. You can do what you want. And if those two things get tangled up, well, we just go about our way. When we reject the authority of the Bible, we necessarily reject the authority of God. When we reject the authority of the Bible, by default, we reject the authority of God. As I mentioned last week, these two things go hand in hand. It isn't God's authority over there and the Bible's authority over here and the two aren't on speaking terms. That's not how we view this whole thing. The Bible's authority is inextricably tied to God's authority. And this means that what we read in the Bible is what God thinks. What we read in Scripture is what God thinks about things. It isn't God's exhaustive knowledge, for that is something we will never be able to comprehend. But it is significantly, it is a significant part of God's knowledge, for that's how he's chosen to reveal himself in history. God and his word go together because his word is the revelation of his authority by the means of the Holy Spirit. One of the things Christians need to do better at is getting a grip on how we actually view the world around us, how we see the world, and how we interact with the world. We need a presuppositional apologetic to give us a grid for how to live in a world at odds with Christ. And here's what I mean. When you read a text like Romans 1, one of the conclusions you should draw is there is no neutrality in the world. Okay? There is no neutrality in the world. Because we want you to know that. There is neutrality. There is neutrality. And then when you're talking to your friends at the playground, you can say, there's no neutrality. And then you can get into a great discussion and share the gospel. There isn't a man on the planet who is standing in a neutral spot in relation to God. It just doesn't happen. All men worship, as we see in this text, and if it isn't Jesus, what are they worshiping? Creation. Themselves. Plants and animals, birds. Their bodies, other people's bodies, they physically must worship something. And so when you when you suppress the truth about God, you exchange gods, you exchange sovereigns, you exchange which Lord you bow before. If Christ will not be Lord, something or someone else will be Lord. If Christ and his sovereignty won't be the fixed point of authority, then someone or something else will be the fixed point of sovereign authority. That's why the only fixed point right now Is built on conventions What does society think? What's the general consensus? Well then that's true And and the foundational principle here is that Without the transcendent God up there Something down here Becomes the object of worship Now track with me Imminency without transcendency Leads to despondency I'll explain that what happens when you try to come up with something that rhymes Imminency <laughs> Without transcendency Leads to despondency So let me explain Imminency simply refers To the closeness of God In his creation So for something to be imminent Is for that thing to be near, to be close so, as Christians, we confess God is an imminent God. He took on flesh. He, he um, was born in a, in a, in a feeding trough. <laughs> so, that's pretty close. <laughs> Jesus is with us. God with us. Emmanuel. So, that's imminency. Transcendency refers to God's otherness. God is distinct from creation. That That's attesting to his transcendency. He transcends creation. He is otherly. He's distinct. He's different. He's not, you know, like the pantheist, he's not tied up in creation. He's distinct, but he is involved in it. That's his imminent transcendency and imminency. Um. <clears throat> So if we try to throw off the chains of God's transcendent sovereign authority over all the universe, it's not that we suddenly don't have a we, you know we suddenly don't have an authority. Just because someone doesn't bow before the King of Kings doesn't mean Jesus isn't King. Mm-hmm. But when this exchange that Paul describes happens, when the suppression leads to the worship of creation instead of the Creator, imminency, that nearness, usurps God's transcendency, and thus the only thing that's left is despondency. Let me say this as simply as I know how, okay? When you reject the sovereign authority of God as revealed in the Word of God, and you begin to worship the imminent creation... You're going to become a miserable person. When, when sinners cast off the authority of God and his word, they don't suddenly have no authority. They, they make themselves the authority. And thus sin dulls them down like a used pencil. So to say it another way, if you don't follow the God of the Bible, you will follow yourself as your own God and you will not be very happy. Psalm 1, which we read earlier, is, is to the point. The man who is governed by God's word is a man who flourishes like a tree next to a stream. Kids, what happens if a tree doesn't get water? Does it live for very long? No, it dies, doesn't it? So is the person who is detached from Scripture. And that's part of the problem for us sometimes. We, we think that we can go chasing down all the joy and happiness we can find all the while doing it apart from Jesus Christ. We, we think that if we prostrate ourselves before, uh, before stuff that is not Jesus Christ, that we're just going to be fine and dandy. Who needs Jesus when I have this shiny new thing? Who needs Jesus when I have evolution and science to trust? Who needs to bow before Christ the King when this, that, and the other is now available to me? Why do I need Christ as an authority over me when I'm perfectly capable of managing myself without him? Those are the questions. Applying Romans 1 means that we must presuppose in all things the sovereignty and authority of God, the authority of his word and the centrality of the gospel. True gospel-centered thinking means that we must judge, evaluate, and discern all things in accordance with the authority of the Bible. And that's why, children, your parents instruct you in the Word of God. They are trying to give you something that you can always rely upon, that you can always trust, because the Bible is the Word of God. And so, friends, all of this means that we have, to know, we have to know where our allegiance lies. We have to come to the point where we trust the Bible and the Bible alone as our ultimate standard. We have to readily admit that our own selves, our families, and our churches must be centered on the authority of the Holy Scriptures. But it doesn't just stop with us. We are, to put it bluntly, in a war of ideas. We are, in a major way, finding ourselves in a cesspool of immorality, and we have to know where to go. For the most part, our culture has turned off the lights and still fully expects to see everything in the living room. And not only that, it gets mad when it stubs its toe on the corner end table. What our culture needs right now is the light of the gospel. What we must be committed to is not only our belief in the authority of the Bible, we must be committed to a propagation of the authority of the Bible. Simply put, the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to know and do apologetics Our confession of the truthfulness of the Bible must lead us to contending for that truthfulness in all areas of life in the public square. So it does your neighbor no good to simply believe the Bible, right? It doesn't do him any tangible good that you believe the truthfulness of the Bible. We have to actively press the crown rights of King Jesus into everything. And so that's our mission as a church. But, But what are we supposed to say to people? How do we do apologetics? Well, Peter tells us, that we must first set apart Christ as Lord, which means that the gospel won't do anything through you unless it has first captivated you. It won't do anything through you unless it's first captivated you. You can't plead with people for Christ to be their treasure if all, all he is to you is just another God on the shelf. And so we start here. Do you love Christ? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Have you repented and believed on Him for salvation? Are you continuing to repent and believe on Him for salvation? Are you currently, right now, setting all of your affections on Jesus Christ and doing so in such a way as to know deep in your soul that He is your only source for help and comfort? You can't do apologetics if you don't love Christ. So that's step number one. The next thing is the overflow of that first step. When you love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that spills over the banks, and it seeps into everything. A man who is captivated by Christ Jesus is a man who is ready to capture others. A man, or a woman, or a child who is captivated by our Lord Jesus Christ is a man or a woman or a child who is ready to capture others. If all you want to do is argue with people and demean people and get all cocky through the whole process, might I submit to you that you're missing something? Now, I get it. We have strong opinions on things here. We disagree with the public school system. We disagree on how politics are done. I get it. And that's fine and dandy. And we do talk about those things, and we ought to. But if you think that the only reason for your existence is to just simply cause controversy for controversy's sake for the people around you all the time, then then your contentious behavior is a sin, and it must be repented of. And I certainly speak and preach to myself first. When a person begins to understand presuppositional apologetics and begins to see how only Christianity gives you the right and true foundation for all things like knowledge and morality and philosophy, when you get that, you're going to feel like you can take on the world. Right when you first understood, like when you first get start to understand the foundation of Scripture, and the truthfulness of God, and, and how that flows into everything, you're ready to pick up a sword and go. Like that's that's your attitude. Um, you want to take on the world. Once you grasp the concepts we've covered the past two weeks, you're going to want to start to do something about it. And we must be able to do something about it. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. And here's what I would say to that. Our posture is one of humility, not animosity. We do not shy away from controversy, but we're not jerks for Jesus. We're not to be a stumbling block. We are called to humbly engage the world around us with this explosive truth of the Lordship of Christ. And no doubt people will be upset. No doubt the death squads at Planned Parenthood in D.C. yesterday were fairly perturbed at our presence there yesterday. But, but such is the implementation of the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't cater to your feelings on the matter or my feelings on the matter. There is truth and there is falsity and we must not waver on the truth. But in order for us to do apologetics, we have to get to the point where we realize that while we do need an iron fist and a velvet glove, we don't just need to go swinging without careful strategy. We're to be wise as serpents, not violent as serpents when we do apologetics, evangelism and street preaching and so forth which we intend to do more here in even our own town um, by the way as we've been talking and planning through that but w- while we think through those things we have to keep in mind that we are in a war of ideas. We are in a war of religions. We had a lady yesterday argue with us and she said, I'm not religious I'm not religious and I said that is a religious statement and we had somewhat of a conversation um, but everyone, you know, everyone's religious. Mm-hmm. And because man is always a worshiping man, all his unruly conclusions are simply religiously motivated posturing. Everything is religious behind all of the veneer of neutrality. Behind all of all of these, you can throw paint on a house, but if if the plumbing's bad, if there's you know the walls are broken, it's not a great house just because as great looking paint on the outside so there's no such thing as an atheist <laughs> all men are doing religion they're doing religion every day on television on the view <laughs> they're, that's religion that's a religious show I don't know if you knew that it's a very highly religious show And either they're going to do it Christ's way or they're going to do it their own way. And it's our job to love Jesus in such a way that we invite others to love Him too. We must preach and we must persuade. But we must know that in all of that, that the Spirit and only the Spirit of God will change that person's heart. Not you, not me, not our arguments. There is no other standard. So let us do the work humbly understanding the authority of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we understand that without your divine grace, we are a helpless, motley crew. Without your spirits quickening, we are a mess. So be pleased, Father, to fill us with your Holy Spirit to do your work. We humble ourselves this day underneath the beauty of the gospel and trust that our witness here in northern Virginia will be effective and spirit wrought. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of salvation secured by your blood. We glorify you, Father, and ask for wisdom as we do the work of apologetics in a world in desperate need of salvation. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 I want to invite you to come forward and partake of of communion. Um, And you can take a piece of the bread and um, take the cup. And go back to your seats, and then we will partake together in a moment. So come Cross and Crown Church and welcome to Jesus Christ.